Look how cool that is, that metro thing. Come on, that is cool. Isn't it? Oh yeah. There's a metro stop right on a highway? Yeah, this is LA, dude. Get with the program. Hello from Gimlet Media, this is Startup. I'm Lisa Chow. And once again, I'm sitting in the car with the ex-CEO of American Apparel, Dove Charney. And just a quick warning, there's some swearing in this episode and some sexual content. This is an interesting um, mural that I'm going to shoot now, since we're in traffic. That's a good one. Dove's taking photographs while driving. This happens all the time. Something catches his eye, a mural or an old sign or a storefront, and he has to get the shot. So he rolls down the window, grabs his phone, stretches out both hands, and totally forgets about the steering wheel. Oops. Oops. That was a good one, though. Fashion Square. They're going to like that one in Paris. <laughs> oh, shit. There's a big Mack truck on our ass. The photos he's taking are of what you might call vintage L.A. There's a sign for a hair salon, painted by hand, the words written in Spanish. There's a mural of a bright blue car with tail fins. A fading red and yellow sign reads, Sexy Donuts, Ice Cream, Croissant. These photos are part of Dove's marketing plan for his new company. He shares them on Facebook and Instagram. So yeah, I'm showing people these neighborhoods, these vernacular signs capturing the, you know, the texture of these communities. I'll probably end up building a massive operation down here. Bring it all together. Probably end up employing thousands of people. You know, probably break my, my back doing it, but I'm going to get it done. For a lot of people, this would be a very bold claim. Looking out on a stretch off the highway and declaring that one day they're going to build a factory there and employ thousands of people. But for Dove, that claim is not so outrageous because he did it once before. He did it at American Apparel, the company that fired him in 2014 and filed for bankruptcy a year later. Just this week, American Apparel declared bankruptcy for a second time. Today on the show, we're going back to the first time Dove did it. The first time he started making t-shirts in a little factory off the highway and eventually grew that into a business that employed 10,000 people around the world. We'll look at how Dove saw the world and how the world began to see Dove. The story starts many years ago, when Dove was a kid. As a parent, I was really very frightened often. This is Sylvia Safdie, Dove's mom. You know, because one thing was, and you could see this in Dove always, was very hard to create boundaries. He just did not like to be confined. I met Sylvia at her home. She's an artist and lives in a spacious loft in Montreal. Yeah, this is beautiful. This is Thank beautiful. You. We work there downstairs. My studio's on the first floor. It's a we sit down at Sylvia's dining room table. She's dressed casually in loose-fitting olive green pants. She says they're American apparel. And she wears the same glasses as Dove, thick 70s frames. Dove and his mom are close. They talk almost every day. His parents divorced when he was three. His dad lived close by, and Dove would roam between the two houses. A lot of entrepreneurs have stories of their childhood businesses, 
But Dove's childhood businesses, they feel like they're on a totally different scale. When Dove was just 11 years old, he started printing and selling his own newspapers. But even at 11, Dove showed a drive that felt almost scary to his parents, like they didn't know where it might take him. One night I was at the wedding and my his babysitter calls and she says, we don't know where Dove is. I called all his friends. He's nowhere. I came running home. We called the police. I was going crazy. And he suddenly arrives around 2.30 at night in a taxi full of papers. And I said, where have you been? And he said, I've been at the printer. I said, why didn't you call? He's like, I was too busy. I said, why are you doing it at night? He says, it's cheaper, Mom. It's cheaper. I don't have that much money. I have to do it at night. <laughs> so everything was a test, you know, and do you punish him? Of course you try, but he would, you know, really, he would take, he would take me to court. Like, his rights, why you should, why you shouldn't, and what of that, you know. It was a constant challenge. By the time Dev was a teenager, his entrepreneurial activities were focused mostly on T-shirts. In high school, he would buy T-shirts across the border in the States and upsell them back in Canada. At 16, he was peddling bootleg T-shirts at a Madonna concert. By the time Dev got to college, he was a seasoned T-shirt salesman. Dove's college roommate was a guy named Eric Ribner. They're pretty different. Eric rode crew while Dove rode a moped. Eric went to bed early while Dove was a night owl. But the two became good friends. And freshman year, they ran a business together. We started a t-shirt company. We, we made t-shirts that said Tufts University in all different color combinations. So I put up the money. He knew the manufacturer in Boston. He and I would sit at the campus center and sell t-shirts. Within a few weeks, they made $4,000. But Dove didn't want to just buy other people's shirts and resell them. He wanted to make his own. So when Eric and many people in Dove's class went to study abroad their junior year, Dove went to rural South Carolina to learn about the textile industry. Dove returned to school for his senior year, but one day he was sitting in the campus center and he decided he was just ready to go. He hopped in his car and called his mom from the road. And he says, Mom, I'm on my way. I'm on my way to South Carolina. And I said, Dove, it's the end of the term. You've got to finish school. And he said, oh, don't worry, Mom. I'll finish. I'll finish. But I've got to get there first. I've got to manufacture. And he went there. And, you know, what could I do? Dove ended up spending the rest of his 20s in the Carolinas, building a company called Acme Shirt Company. He learned the trade from older Southern guys who had been in the textile industry for generations. There was Stickley Yarns, Jack Stickley. Sold me yarn for a buck twenty. There was Joel Harrison, who had a barn in a town called 96, South Carolina. And in that barn, there was 20, 30 sewing machines. And that's where I sewed my first T-shirts. That looks very similar to this one. Almost identical. Dove pulls at the T-shirt he's wearing a thicker, more structured fit than today's typical American apparel T-shirt. It's part of the new line he's developing for his new company. Can you tell me how you became such a nerd about T-shirts? 
I was a little bit smaller than the other children. And I found that in the States, I was able to find my size, but my size was not available in Canada. And so um, I started to really study T-shirts and the American iconic T-shirt, Hanes T-shirt. But I liked how it fit me. You know, it was, it was, at the time, I think it was pursuing more of a James Dean kind of, you know, but I was like, small. Back in South Carolina, Dove studied how to knit his first rolls of combed cotton rib fabric. To gin up business for his young company, he'd go to trade shows. Dove didn't have money for a fancy booth, so instead he'd walk the show and pass out samples from his gym bag. At one of the shows, Dove met a guy named Rick Klotz. They were at a party, and Rick was standing on the second-floor balcony, looking down at the dance floor. And I saw this guy just jerking all around and dancing like, uh, like wild, like a complete nerd. Like, he, he didn't know how to dance, but he was doing it, and he didn't care what anybody thought of him. And I, I tapped my uh, friend salesman on, on the shoulder, and I said, hey, isn't that that guy that was trying to sell his T-shirts? Earlier today, he said, yeah, yeah. And uh, he caught my eye. And he looked up at me and he, you know, pointed at me like this, like maybe like Jerry Lewis would in a, one of his movies. Like, hey! And uh, I kind of kind of fell in love with him at that very moment, to tell you the truth, because, uh, you know, he was uh, a little different. <laughs> Rick and Dove became friends. Rick lived in Los Angeles, where he ran a successful clothing business selling streetwear. Dove was still in South Carolina, where his business was struggling. It was the late 90s, a bad time to start a t-shirt business in America. Top brands like Fruit of the Loom and Hanes were moving their manufacturing overseas. Dove couldn't compete with these established companies. And in 1996, his company declared bankruptcy. After the bankruptcy, Dove moved to L.A. and started working on his next project. It was a women's T-shirt he'd been tinkering with. Dove crashed with his friend Rick. He didn't have money to hire fit models, but he knew where he could find women to try on his new T-shirt, a place just down the street from Rick's apartment. Well, he had the balls to bring pieces into a strip club and ask girls to try them on and do the fittings for him. Can you imagine? Like, hey, you know, I got a box of T-shirts here. Can you try them on? You know, how about these halter tops? He didn't care, you know. I was a little embarrassed going into a strip club and asking somebody to try and stuff, but no, he's, he's not. And it was just trying to, like, find the right fit. Almost like it was in the product development stage. It was testing. Yes, you know, and it's tough. He works quick. He wants answers quick. He wants to try something on. He wants to go over it. Very neurotic about it, as he, as he should be. And, you know, I guess, like, a club full of girls is an easy place to do fittings, you know, quickly. Right around this time, Dove launched a new t-shirt company, and he called it American Apparel. One of its main products would be this new women's t-shirt, more fitted, softer, and made right here in America, in a factory off the freeway in L.A. But American Apparel in the beginning was purely wholesale, a commodity business where customers mainly cared about price. He had to keep his costs down, however he could, and when his suppliers stood in the way of that, Things did not go well. He talked to my producer, Caitlin Roberts, about it. I would just blow a tantrum. 
I remember walking into this guy's office. It was like, who's the supervisor? You know, who's the boss here? You know, and it'd be like this Korean man that doesn't speak English. I was just screaming and yelling so much that I guess I bullied them. And, yeah, and then they said they couldn't do the finishing the way I wanted it, that it's not possible. I said, what are you talking about? I, I, I finished this fabric, okay, every day, all right, in South Carolina, and I get 5% shrinkage. Don't give me that we have to have 10% shrinkage. You know how to use your machines, okay? And they, you know, I, I would just flip these tantrums like a crazy kid, and I'd start to get my way. They responded well to the bullying. Yes, yes, emotion, it works, okay? It's not bullying, it's passion. They love it. Within a few years, Dove was working out of a factory in Los Angeles and employing dozens of people. He was bringing in millions of dollars in sales. And it went from 10 million to 20 million to 40 million to 80 million to 100 million and nothing could stop me. Dove was making $100 million, but he was making it running a wholesale business. He was selling blank t-shirts to churches, schools, bands. Outside of a few apparel industry insiders, most people had never heard of Dove Charney. That was all about to change. That's coming up after the break. Welcome back to Startup. By the early 2000s, five years into running American Apparel, Dove decided to make a big change in the company. He wanted to make the leap from wholesale to retail, from selling T-shirts in bulk to businesses to selling directly to consumers. So he called his old college roommate, Eric Ribner. Eric was now working in New York on Wall Street. I'll never forget when he called me up and told me to go down to Broadway and, like, Astor Place. <laughs> And he's like, I'm, I'm opening up a retail store on Astor Place. And I said, what? You don't know how to do retail. What are you opening up a retail store for? This was after American Apparel was going and his wholesale business was building. And he's like, I'm, I'm going into the retail business. I'm like, <laughs> I said, well, it's not your core competency. You got to stick to your core competency. It was a business school term, I remember. And he had never heard that term until I used it. And he's like, well, I'm opening up a retail store. But Eric was right. Dove didn't know anything about starting a retail business. Then, one day, Dove was introduced to a woman named Tacey Webb. Tacey had built a successful career in fashion. She had 10 years of experience in retail. She'd been on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. And when Dove and Tacey first met, she was not impressed. I mean, I was very fashionable. I'm going to sound judgmental, uh, but Dove had, you know, bad taste. <laughs> I mean, it's it's kind of as simple as that. Dove was a guy who knew everything about manufacturing. He was excited about the fashion industry, but at the point when I became involved, honestly, he didn't know kind of the proper terminology for many items. But Dove made his pitch to her. Come work at American Apparel. Help me build a retail empire. Dove told her about his factory in L.A., which employed immigrant workers at good wages, in good working conditions. Tacey was in. I wanted to be a part of what Dove was doing. It felt like we were involved in a very noble mission. 
especially at that point, the atrocities that were happening in sweatshops and the young women with crippled hands in their early 20s, people being put out to pasture, people in factories in China living there and never seeing their children. Uh, you know, this is stuff that the media was for so long turning a blind eye to, but we all knew it was there, even very expensive garments. There were no alternatives. Dove's idea was to take the mission and make it part of the brand. He emphasized the fact that consumers could feel good about the conditions their clothes were made in. And he focused on basics. T-shirts, hoodies, leggings, using simple designs, no logos, in all different colors. The brand caught on. Stores were popping up in young urban areas. Echo Park in L.A., Williamsburg in Brooklyn. And Tacey was part of that. She scouted new locations, negotiated leases, and organized contractors. Everyone wanted us. People were courting us from all over the country. People wanted to invest. People wanted us to open in their mall. People were willing to finance every location. Like you walked in and you said you were with American Apparel and they were just rolling out the red carpet. You want three months free rent? We'll give you six months free rent. Everybody wanted to be a part of what was, you know, feeling like more than a brand. It was really feeling like a movement. Sales soared. By 2005, Dove had opened more than 100 stores in countries around the world. I remember opening stores in New York like a drunken sailor, and it worked. You know those guys that roll you around on the bicycle, and you know what I mean, in New York City? In the winter, you know, the bike where you zip it up? Pedicabs? Yeah, I used to hire one of those guys and go up and down the streets looking for stores. I'd look around, I'd check, I'd check, I'd check, I'd check. That one! It worked, because I could stop the pedicab. Like, it's different than a, you know, than a taxi. And I'd rent stores. And my stores in New York were very profitable. Made a lot of money in New York City. A lot of bread. As the company grew, Dove became as detail-oriented about his stores as he'd been about his T-shirts. He'd leave L.A. for weeks to visit stores around the country and evaluate how they were performing. Dove would look at their sales and inventory, but he'd also examine the store's look. He'd debate whether the store had the right mannequins in the window or how a neon sign was hanging on the wall. And if a store was messy, Dove would get angry. And then he'd get down on his hands and knees and clean the store himself. All the details had to be on brand, including the way his employees dressed. Dove cultivated a very specific American apparel look. And everyone, models, retail employees, and people at the corporate headquarters were expected to meet these standards. I talked to several former employees who described how Dove wanted them to dress and groom themselves. He, like, really wanted people to look a certain way. Like, your eyebrows needed to, you couldn't overpluck them, you couldn't draw them in, and it had to look like Brooke Shields' um, eyebrows. Like, he literally sent out a photo of her eyebrows, saying that this is how they should look. He would tell people pretty openly to leave their hair natural. He would tell people pretty openly not to uh, get rid of their body hair. He definitely does not like tattoos. He wanted like everyone to look like they were from like the 70s or 80s and you know everyone had to be dressed impeccably. Did you buy that shirt at Target? We can tell. Like Target's a big no-no. <laughs> Fast fashion is a big no-no in the community. He would say I don't really like this person's style. Like, I don't think that he's wearing the clothes appropriately, like, you know. And so even from the very beginning, he was already thinking um, about 
branding and standards. There are definitely women that were hired based on looks. This is Stacy again. She'd been in the fashion industry long enough to know that looks did matter. But it was difficult for her to see people getting hired at American Apparel who really didn't have any skills. I think the hard part for me as someone who really defines herself as a feminist was to watch a woman based on her appearance and also potentially her sense of fashion advance over another person that had better experience. It was just like, are we sure that this person is actually qualified to get this work done? Or do they just look really hot in those jeans? Tacey wasn't the only one who said this. We've talked to people who went from stocking shelves in their late teens and early 20s to almost overnight working at corporate headquarters, managing a big budget, or weighing in on important projects. Dove says hiring people without experience was part of his plan. I was finding people in the street. I could take someone that's had no experience in something, but they have the natural ability to merchandise a store. It, it could be a woman, it could be a man, but I'll just give you, you know, a stereotypical story of a, 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 a young woman. They say, hey, can you organize that wall? Just use your instance. Organize that wall of socks and hosiery. I'll be back in an hour. And you're paying her $9 an hour. And you come back, and that wall looks amazing. And the next day, you clock the sales on that wall, and it's up 50%. Then you take a 47-year-old, you pay him 500 grand a year, and they just can't seem to score like she scored. Did that happen? Of course it happened. How do you think I built the company? A lot of these young retail employees also modeled for the company. They were featured in billboards, store windows, and print ads. American Apparel's advertising campaign may be one of the most infamous in retail history. The ads were simple. There'd be a model, usually in front of a plain white background, with some text. The women in the ads look like people you might see walking down the street in a hip neighborhood in L.A. or New York. They wore very little makeup. They were different shapes and ethnicities. They weren't airbrushed to perfection. They looked real. In most of the ads, they were in sexually provocative positions, scantily clad. There'd be a woman going topless to advertise a pair of socks or wearing an American Apparel bodysuit with her legs spread. The line read, now open. Some people praised the ads and saw them as symbols of sexual freedom. Other people thought the ads went too far. People like Sylvia, Dove's mom. I come from a, a feminist moment in history. And as women, we really were fighting the notion of being objectified. And when I would see some of the ads, I felt that that's what it was doing. But when I spoke to some of the women in American Apparel, they would say that they felt empowered. And they would talk about how some of the ads were parodies, and they felt that they were taking this on. The idea that they felt empowered, I didn't agree with, 
But I understood it, and I could understand what my mother felt like when we took off our bras, wore miniskirts, and, you know, uh, in the 60s. I was very much part of that. Like, what, I mean, when you would see an ad that you thought maybe went too far, what would you do? Would you just I call Dove and say, Dove, you're going too far. And he said, wait till next week, we'll have another one. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I talked a lot to Dove about it. I talked to the staff about it. I felt that, particularly since so many young girls were going into the stores, but certainly nothing I was going to say was going to change anything. There's a certain point you've got to let go. Your, your, your children are out in the world. They're going to do what they're going to do. I, let, I had to let go. I mean, sometimes I was embarrassed by that, but other times I thought they were brilliant. So, you know, it wasn't like I was critical of all of it. I just, I just th thought that it was not necessary, but it was getting attention. By 2005, Dove also started getting attention for something else. Three former employees accused Dove of sexual harassment. One suit also named the company. The lawsuits claimed that Dove had created a sexually hostile work environment, by doing things like instructing an employee to hire a, quote, hot woman, exposing himself to an employee, and talking about women in crude and sexual terms. Dove denied the allegations. At the time, he called the suits a false attempt to extort money from his company and exploit his transparent persona. The cases were settled out of court. Around this time, a reporter named Claudine Coe wrote a story about Dove and American Apparel for Jane magazine. In the article, she recounts how over several days of reporting, Dove repeatedly masturbated in front of her. Dove didn't deny it. He later told the New York Times that any sexual activities described in the Jane article were consensual. We reached out to Claudine. She didn't want to talk about the article on tape, but she says that word, consensual, is misleading. She stayed in the room to do her job as a reporter. The article led to a lot of negative publicity. But some people in the apparel industry say the piece put Dove on the map. Controversy became part of the brand, and Dove leaned into that controversy. The advertisements became even more provocative. Many photos were taken in apartments and bedrooms and suggested the photographer was capturing a private moment. For many of these photo shoots, the photographer was Dove. He saw the world from a very sexual powerful place for a while. At least that's what I saw in his pictures. Like his pictures were, they spoke volumes and it was just like the fact that the girl's, I don't know, girl's mouth was open a certain way. I don't know how to explain it. This is Tina Puglisi. She worked in the video department at American Apparel when Dove ran the company. The photography was what made him so powerful in a way because it was so controversial. And it, I mean, uh, I don't know what I should say. <laughs> uh, the girls looked like they were having sex, you know, like in the pictures. That's what it was. And I think that's what he wanted to capture. Can I ask you a question, though? Yeah. Okay, so Tina, you just said, um, like one of the things about the, about the billboards is that like these women look like they had just had sex. Yeah, or were having sex, yes. Yes. Yeah. So, so they looked like they were just having sex. Were they just having sex? I don't know. I don't know. But I think that 
perhaps that's what made them so interesting. Girls in their underwear. It's been done before. Like, it's not that new, but there's, there's like a visceral realness in those pictures. And, and for me, that there's emotion attached to those pictures. There's something more going on than a pretty girl in front of a camera. So, what was going on in those photos? What was it like to be that pretty girl in front of the camera? And what was Dove's role in all of this? That's coming up on the next episode of Startup. Startup is hosted by me, Lisa Chow. Our show is produced by Bruce Walls, Luke Malone, Molly Messick, and Simone Polanin. Our senior producer is Caitlin Roberts. We are edited by Alex Bloomberg and Alexandra Johns. We also want to give thanks to our editor over the last year, Peter Clowney. He's leaving Gimlet this week, and we wish him the very best. Fact-checking by Michelle Harris. Special thanks to Rachel Strom, Christine Driscoll, Shruti Penamanani, and Marianne McCune. Mark Phillips wrote and performed our theme song, the new version of the theme song by the peerless Bobby Lord. Build Buildings wrote and performed our special ad music. Original music by the band HotMoms.gov, which includes the Reverend John Delore, Jordan Scanella, Sam Merrick, Isamu McGregor, and Curtis Brewer. Music direction by Matthew Bowl. Additional music by Tyler Strickland and Tom Bromley. Martin Peralta and Andrew Dunn mixed the episode. To subscribe to the podcast, go to iTunes or check out the Gimlet Media website, gimletmedia.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Podcast Startup. Thanks for listening. We're off next week. We'll be back in two weeks. <laughs>